You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Um, So today's Bible reading comes from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam the father of Abijah. Abijah the father of Asa. Asa the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram. Jehoram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah the father of Jotham. Jotham the father of Ahaz. Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile to Babylon and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Woo! Well done. Come on. Oh, what a cruel passage to give to someone. I said I, said I would be happy to read that passage since I felt just unfair to give it to anyone, but I said, but Stephanie was like, oh, Soph's down to do it. She can do it. And she said, yeah, I'm up for it. So well done. All right. Are you ready for the quiz? All right. Let's bring it up. Here's the quiz. I'm not kidding. <laughs> There's going to be a quiz. Um, all right. So the, this, this first slide that's going to come up, there's uh, let's see, there, there's something like 46 names listed in Matthew 1, 1 through 17. Abraham, down to Jesus, all the names that are listed. We're going to bring up a slide that has 25, the top 25 most mentioned names in that list in scriptures. So if you, um, oh, it's great, it's up there, good. Okay, um, so there's one name up there that's not on this list. Who sees it? Shout it out. Paul. Good. All right. Good. Just making sure you're paying attention. Paul. Yes, Paul is on this, but Paul is not in the list that um, Sophie just read. Okay. So the rest of these names are all um, 
in that list, I believe. And within this um, 25 are the 10 most used in Scripture. So what I mean by that is if you um, go into a word search in some sort of like Bible database and search in Manasseh, it will tell you how many times the word Manasseh is used in the Scripture. So we're going to do a quiz on figure out what the top 10 most referenced, most used names are in this list. So what do you think the most used name in this list is? I eliminated a bunch of names. This is like the top 24. So um, what do you think the number one name used in Scripture is? Abraham? Some Jesus, some Jesus guesses? Hey, Jesus is right. The number one chance, Jesus is always the right answer, and he's the right answer here, and that's the sermon. Have a good day. No. Um, Yes, Jesus, I, I was wrong. I thought Abraham when I w- was guessing. It's not Abraham. So Jesus is number one. All right, maybe that one's a bit of a gimme. Um, all right, what do, we, what do you think number two would be? Can you pop back to the top 25 list so they can see the, yeah, yeah. So number, so Jesus is used. Number two, any guesses? Okay, da- some David, some, okay, Abraham. All right, let's, let's see number two. Well done. Who's two for two? All right, well done. Let's go. All right, let's see who gets this third one. Um, number three, what do you think? Some Mary. Oh, there's, yeah, you got, you're not so sure anymore. Abraham. Okay, let's see number three. This one surprised me. Judah. Judah, the line of Judah, the tribe of Judah. Who got that? Greg, all right, and John, great. Anyone three for three? No, we're out. No one three for three. All right. Um, number four. Number four. Let's just show it. I don't even remember who number four. Jacob. Okay, number four. And then let's go number five. Solomon. So we're not even to Abraham yet, right? Like, that's shocking. Yeah. Solomon. The next is Abraham. All right. And then, and then it just becomes good luck. Uh, number six, Manasseh. So yeah, so Manasseh is one of, the, one of the tribes. So Judah and Manasseh have this bump of being one of the tribes of Israel. Manasseh is the oldest son of Joseph. Um, Joseph uh, Joseph's mentioned in the genealogy, but only as Joseph and Mary, not as Joseph, son of Jacob, um, because his line passes through Manasseh and his son Ephraim. So that's why Joseph isn't as high on this list as you would expect him to be. But Manasseh uh, is one of the tribes, so it's pretty high. Next is Isaac, son of Abraham. Um, Next, Hezekiah, um, king for like 55 years, a really, really long time as a king. Um, And then, is that it? Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, not a good king. Um... I don't have my notes about Jehoshaphat. That's all right. And I think that, is that it? All right, great. All right. Thanks, Paul. All right, well, well done. Uh, we won't go over all 46 names this morning. Um, so here's, here's, what, here's what I'm going to do this morning in my, in my sermon. I'm going to ask the question, um, why does Matthew include this genealogy? And what does it tell us about who Jesus is? And then I'm going to ask the second question, why am I preaching on it? And then I'm going to ask a third question, which is, what 
does this genealogy of a family tree from 2,000 years ago have anything to do with you and I today? Those are the three questions I'm going to ask and try to answer by God's grace. Let's pray. May your word be our rule and your spirit our teacher and the glory of Christ our only concern. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Why does Matthew include a genealogy and what does it tell us about Jesus? Jesus' story is a story that belongs to a particular people in a particular time. It's, it's, it's a story that belongs to Israel and to this family tree. Um, and it's a story that is much bigger than this family tree and belongs to all people. This is at the heart of what's going on in Matthew's genealogy. Matthew is a good Jewish writer, writing to a Jewish audience primarily. And so he begins with a genealogy to locate Jesus within the story of Israel. Matthew's genealogy is Jewish in that it begins with the patriarch and moves down towards the youngest, towards Jesus. Luke also has a genealogy in, in his book. His starts with Jesus and works down, which is the Greek style of doing genealogies. And it works all the way uh, to Adam, who is the son of God. Um, so Luke goes further back. He has his own motivations for the way he does his genealogy. Matthew is a Jewish writer writing to a Jewish audience. He writes a Jewish genealogy because he wants to locate Jesus in a particular way within the story of Israel. And yet right away we get a hint that something bigger is going on. Verse 1 opens, This is the Genesis of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The word genealogy is literally the word Genesis, the name of the first book of the Bible. John's gospel famously opens with an homage to Genesis and the creation story when he quotes Genesis and says, in the beginning was the word. As Genesis opens, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, Matthew is even less subtle than John about connecting the story of Jesus to, to the story of all things. This is the Genesis, Matthew says. This is the beginning of the story of Jesus the Messiah. It's a particular story for Israel, but it's a story whose beginning goes back to the very beginning and has consequences for all people. Son of David is mentioned first. This is Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. Matthew is going to use David's name a lot throughout uh, his gospel. Uh, part of the reason it scores so high, uh, it's used in the New Testament even quite a bit. Matthew uses it a fair amount. He wants to make the point really explicit that Jesus is a king in the line of David. Uh, Old Testament prophecy said that the Messiah, the one who comes to save Israel, will come in the line of David. And so Matthew just wants to lay this out really clearly that the genealogy shows that, that, that Jesus does come from the line of David. So Matthew has a concern here to connect uh, what's happening in the life of Jesus to Israel's greatest king, um, David. The, the, the best days were the days under David, and a king in the line of David will sit on the throne forever. And so uh, Matthew connects Jesus to David explicitly because he's part of the story of Israel. But the second thing that comes right after son of David is son of Abraham. Son of David, 
son of Abraham. And connecting Jesus to Abraham is to connect him to a larger promise, a promise that involves all people. The covenant that God makes with Abraham in Genesis 12 says, I will make you a great nation and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The promises of David are particular to Israel, but the promises to Abraham are cosmic, are global in scope. Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Uh, We see this emphasis pretty quickly in Matthew. In Matthew's gospel, the first people to recognize Jesus as king and Lord are not Israelites, are not faithful followers of the scriptures. Um, They're the Magi, the Persian, probably religiously Zoroastrians or something like that, um, who see the signs in the sky and come to worship. They're the first people to worship Jesus. The first people to worship Jesus in Matthew's gospel are people who, who, outside of the people of God, outside of this family tree, but people who recognize that what has happened in Jesus has cosmic, literally cosmic effects in the sky, and they see it, and they go and worship. And Matthew's making the point, yeah, what has happened here in Israel is for all people. The story of Jesus is the story of God's redemption through Israel, but it isn't just a separate story. New Testament author Richard Hayes says, Matthew's not just looking for random Old Testament proof texts in his gospel that Jesus might somehow fulfill. Rather, he is thinking about the shape of Israel's story and linking Jesus' life with key passages and the promise of God's unbreakable, redemptive love for his people. Matthew uses a genealogy to locate Jesus within the story of Israel and to point us to the fact that what's happening in this family tree is going to have an effect on every family tree. Why am I preaching on the genealogy this morning? I'm preaching on the genealogy in part because I think it's important for us to understand how the story of Jesus and the story of our faith is connected to the story and the family of Israel. I'm also preaching on it because family trees are interesting. Um, I don't know if you've spent much time in your family tree um, or if you've ever had to do a genogram. I had to do a genogram in seminary, which is a sort of family tree. If you want to ruin your Christmas holidays, try to do one with your family. Um, it's, it's where you, you sort of map out, um, you know, you, you have sort of the family tree, but then you look in particular for patterns, things like um, separations. Where are there separations or divorces in the family tree? Where, is there, where are there, you know, you look at medical history, right? What, what have people died from in the past, and, and how does that affect the family tree? Where, where are there patterns of addiction? You can look at conflict and say, oh, where have there been major conflicts in our family history Or maybe why are we so conflict-averse? Or um, look at how people have moved. Um, Like I said, if you really want to stir the pot this holiday, go for it. Um, But maybe do that separately. Um, As as we've met, as Sonia and I have, you know, we moved here in September, so we're new to the area, meeting a lot of people. And um, one of the things that's really helpful to know as we're meeting people is where, where are your parents from? Um, it's not like a common question we ask, but it usually comes up, particularly in an area where so many people are 
first generation or second generation in Sydney, and, and you, know, um, you know, people will ask us, oh, where are your parents from in, in the U.S.? And um, it's a really helpful question to know. Family trees can tell us a lot um, about, about the people we're meeting. Tells us a lot about Jesus. Tells us a lot about God's family. And one of the primary metaphors that the New Testament uses to talk about what it means to be Christian is the metaphor of family. In 1 Peter, uh, talks, 1 Peter talks, uses the verse, uh, you know, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you were not a part of this family tree, and now you are. This is a primary way of understanding what has happened in Jesus. Once you were not a part of this family tree, Ephesians says, but you are no longer now strangers and foreigners, but you are members of the household of God. This family tree that we just heard listed off is our family tree. You were received through adoption. It's a primary metaphor in the book of Romans. This is our story. At Christmas, God enters into our story, not because he wants to be a part of our family, but because he wants to make us a part of his. You are invited to Christmas dinner. You, the family calendar is going to get shared with you. You're a part of the family. You're incorporated into the household of God. You belong to this family tree. But what business do you and I have being a part of the family tree that Jesus is a part of? Well, when you look at this cast of characters, it's not so hard to believe that you and I might be invited into it. One pastor wrote, Jesus did not, did not belong to the nice, clean world of middle-class respectability, but rather he belonged to a family of murderers, cheats, cowards, adulterers, and liars. He belonged to us and came to help us. Every one of the 45 names, I think, there's, I think Jesus is the 46, so every one of the 45 names listed in this genealogy has great reason to be excluded from the lineage and bloodline of Jesus. I mean, we, you could, you could talk, talk about each one of them. I mean, Abraham, the father of faith, um, yeah, sometimes. <laughs> and then other times when he's passing through Egypt and rather than have faith that God will see him through and protect him and his wife, he passes his wife off as his sister so that Pharaoh can sleep with her so that he doesn't get his head chopped off. Um, Jacob is the second-born son of Rebekah. And, I mean, when you're reading the story of Jacob, again, this sort of hero of faith, you're reading his story, you're like, do I have to root for this guy? I mean, he's, he's a liar. He's a cheat. He takes advantage of his aging father, uh, you know, steals from his brother, and then spends most of his life running like a coward. Um, David, again, you know, mentioned so much, greatest king of Israel, um, he has a really respectable and upright man, Uriah, whose name makes it into here. Matthew doesn't leave out this detail. He says he, he has this man murdered on the battlefield so that he can take his wife and, and, and marry her. And um, he's, he's got other you know, moments of, of weakness as well. Solomon has the world, has everything, has riches, has wisdom, has wealth, has power, and yet ends his life so poorly in debauchery and in idolatry 
Um, you know, there are some really good kings listed in this list, but there are some terrible kings listed as well that really have nothing in scriptures that would commend them to be a part of the family, the people of God. The people of God have never been the people of God because of their purity. They've never been the people of God because they're morally superior or even faithful. They're the people of God because God has said so. And the only thing more stubborn than the people of God is the love of God holding them. Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and through him, the story of God becomes our story. You are a part of God's family. What does this genealogy have to do with any of us? In what way does this matter? Um, I want to talk a little bit about Christian hope, and then we're going to end at the communion table. Um, you, you, you may have the thought, um, I, <laughs> I don't need another dysfunctional family to be a part of. Uh, I've got my own, thank you, and um, one's enough for me. That's fair. Um, I want to talk about Christian hope. Christian hope. Jesus comes to a family in darkness. Israel was under the heel of Roman oppression. There was no king on the throne. Our Christmas hymns, O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile until the Son of God appears. Israel was in darkness. The family of God is in darkness. There is no king, only Caesar on the throne. Christmas belongs to the hopeless. When there was no hope, God came down and gave us hope. Hope is why it is good news for you to be welcomed into the family of God. In Chicago, it's dark during Advent. I see the sun beginning to come out this morning. That's good for this section of the sermon. Uh, it's dark in Chicago and it's cold. Winter solstice lines up with Christmas. Your back starts to have that winter back pain because you're walking with your shoulders hunched over in the cold. You're staring at a long, cold winter ahead of you, and the, the cold uh, of Christmas really shapes your preparation, your Advent season, your preparation for Christmas. You feel this despair and longing and weariness that Israel feels, longing for their Messiah. So I felt kind of at home this morning as I woke up to the cold rain and made my way to church. It's sort of fitting for me. It's, uh, you know, here the high is projected to be uh, like 26, 27 degrees on, on Christmas. Hopefully it gets that warm. Um, the low in, in, in Chicago for Christmas Day is projected to be minus 14 centigrade. Um, so can't complain too much about the weather here. <laughs> And here the sun sets after 8 p.m. It's been bizarre to experience the energy of like the first days of summer here in December. It's bizarre to see Santa actors sweating under fur coats as they welcome kids. It's bizarre to see snowflake decals melting on the grocery store windows. It's bizarre. And at first it felt to me like there was, how do you talk about hope? How do you talk about longing and despair when, when summer's here? Hope always requires darkness. Miroslav Volf has described hope even as a certain kind of darkness, 
a certain way of being in the darkness. When things are perfect, you don't need hope. Things aren't perfect, are they? As with Josiah down at Belmoral a few weeks ago, we were stopping to get water. He was on the back of the bike, and a woman sat down next to her friend, an elderly woman who had just finished a swim, kind of made her way and sat down on a bench next to a friend. I was just kind of eavesdropping a little bit, I guess. Um, she was talking to her friend about how her knees were hurting and her back was hurting, and she had a towel wrapped around her. She was telling her friend that her days of exercising comfortably were done. And there was so much candor in her words in the midst of this sort of small talk, chit-chat. The way she said that her days of exercising comfortably were over was so honest and candid that I think it caught her friend off guard. This admission of her mortality in the middle of their small talk. There was a slight pause between them. I think she may have even caught herself off guard with how honest it had sounded. What could her friend say? She simply said, yes. Which I think was probably the best answer she could have offered. Yes, your body, which has carried you through so much, is beginning its journey to completion. What else can be said? Another young mother is trying to help her daughter through her first fits of anxiety, all the while doing everything in her own power to disguise her own. I watch through the window of social media as parents wrestle with faith and hope after saying goodbye to a daughter. Three days after she turned five, I listen to the anxious voice of friends in Uganda who aren't sure if the money's going to provide food for their family as costs rise. I listen to a friend wondering whether his marriage has the legs to make it. No, things are not perfect. Circumstances are dire. Thick darkness is over the peoples. But Christian hope is not circumstantial. Optimism depends on circumstance. You may or may not have reason to be optimistic. I don't know about an illness or a relationship, the future of your back pain or of your suburb or of Australia or of the world. But hope, hope, hope is not circumstantial. Hope is not sourced in the circumstances of a world where the news is so more often bad than it is good. At Christmas, the miracle we celebrate is a fundamental shift in the cosmos that gives us reason for hope no matter the circumstance. To what end will God go to incorporate us into his family? He will give us his very life. He will become soft, vulnerable flesh. God enters into the world at Christmas, and who does the story belong to? To a family that has it all together, who is faithful and just and upright? No. It belongs to Mary, the scared teenager whose life just become threatened by an unplanned pregnancy. It belongs to Rahab, who makes it into Matthew's genealogy, the Canaanite prostitute 
from the book of Joshua, who risks her life on the possibility that the God of Israel is the true God, and who finds her name in his lineage. It belongs to Bathsheba, that unnamed wife of Uriah, who becomes a pawn to David's lust, and who pays the price of losing her firstborn. But it is Bathsheba who creates the royal line that will give us the firstborn of all creation. Christmas belongs to the hopeless. The genealogy of Jesus matters to us because while we were without hope, God came down. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. I'm going to transition now into our time of communion. Christian hope always has a particular shape. It's not simply baptizing our desires, our longings, our wishing in, 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 in faith and just saying, like, because I'm a Christian, I believe that whatever I hope for will come to pass. God isn't our cosmic Santa Claus just giving us permission um, to, to, to hope that whatever we want to happen will happen. Christian hope has a particular shape. You may be familiar with the mystery of the faith, uh, which in some traditions is often said at communion. Um, the mystery of the faith is Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Christ has died. Something happened in the past. Jesus went to the cross for our sins. That is done. That won't happen again. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Um, Christ is very present with us. God's Spirit is in our midst. Wherever two or three are gathered, there Jesus is in the midst of us. Jesus is alive and with us. And Christ will come again. The promise that the kingdom that was inaugurated in the birth of Jesus is a kingdom that will have no end. And it presses in on us every day, bringing hope to the hopeless. At this meal, we, we see the shape of Christian hope. At Christmas and in the life and ministry of Jesus, the kingdom of God is inaugurated, and this kingdom presses into our world. Our hope is in the king of that kingdom who meets us this morning at this table. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, was with his disciples in an upper room. And at the end of the meal, Jesus took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them and said, Take, eat, all of you. This is my body, which is broken for you. And in the same way also, he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Take, drink, all of you. This is the cup of the new covenant, the blood of the new covenant. My blood poured out for the sins of the world. Every time you drink of this, do so in remembrance of me. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. We're going to practice communion a little bit differently this morning. Um, so I'll ask the servers to come forward. <laughs> We're going to have um, two stations up front, and we have, we'll have bread, and there's gluten-free crackers. 
Um, and then there's grape juice in the little cups. So you're invited, whenever you're ready, uh, to come down the middle aisle and to go to one of the sides. You can approach, um, receive the bread, and then move on towards the cup and then exit along the sides. And you're welcome to just take and eat as you come forward. You're also welcome to take the elements back to your chair if you'd like. That's up to you. Um, There's never any manipulation at this table. There's never any coercion. There's no obligation to participate. Christ is the host of this table, and you're welcome to come and feast on Christ in your hearts by faith. Let me pray. Oh God, send your Holy Spirit upon us, we pray, that the that the bread and the cup may minister to us this morning to remind us of your great love, that you were willing uh, to lay down your very life in order to incorporate us into your family. There's nothing we can do to convince you to love us anymore, and there's nothing we can do to cause you to love us any less. I pray that this morning as we receive these elements we would understand this truth more deeply. Pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.